0: Welcome to the Flourish with Functional Nutrition podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Lowry, founder of Twin Cities Nutritional Therapy and a nutritional therapy practitioner specializing in chronic digestive issues, allergies, and autoimmune conditions. Join me for episode 12, where we discuss special needs kids and picky eaters with Shandy Lasky, nutritional therapy practitioner and speech therapist. Learn how diet and digestive health impacts autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders. We'll hear about the role of food intolerances in the disease process and some dietary recommendations that can be effective. Listen until the end to hear her health tip. As always, we must disclaim that the information we share in the podcast is for educational purposes only. Functional nutrition is similar to functional medicine in that it seeks to strengthen the systems of the body and address root causes of illness. As nutritional therapy practitioners, we do not diagnose or treat disease, and we recommend working with a qualified practitioner. Now let's hear from Shandy. Well, hi Shandy. Welcome to the show again. So excited to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me back. I'm excited (laughs) to chat again.
0: So today we're going to talk about your particular area of practice, which is around neurodevelopmental disorders and special need kids. Um, Tell me more about that. Uh, Tell me kind of what you specialize in, what kinds of things you see and how you help.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on to talk about it today, because this is really a... Um, a very underrepresented demographic of children and individuals in the world of nutrition and health and wellness. So I appreciate you having me on to chat about what I do and and the people I serve. Uh, When I say neurodevelopmental disorders, what I mean is autism spectrum disorders, attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, speech language disorders, uh, specifically apraxia, uh, sensory processing disorders, learning delays, developmental disorders, these are conditions that are generally more likely to present during critical times of development and are typically caused by a combination of genetic predisposition and environmental factors. So that's the neurodevelopmental disorders aspect of, of uh, of it. And then when I say special needs, um, I'm more referring to those kiddos and conditions that are traditionally considered genetic overall uh, by society, but their health and development could still be, is still positively or negatively being influenced by their diet and their environment. For example, like Down syndrome, right? That is a, we know that that is a genetic condition, um, but you can help children improve their health and development who have Down syndrome, even though it is a genetic condition, because those children are more genetically susceptible to having intolerances and sensitivities to foods and their environment. I see yeah and so so all of them can be helped through nutrition and lifestyle but what i see often and and this is where i particularly specialize are those kiddos who have either a neurodevelopmental or special need diagnosis or sometimes not but the kiddos who are extreme picky eaters and i'm doing air quotes around picky eaters because I really don't like that term. I don't love it, but um, that's what general society refers to it as, right? That self-restricted eating habits. We call it picky eating. But there's a difference between, you know, developmentally appropriate picky eating, right? Like all toddlers and preschoolers and some kiddos through school age, there are stages of development where it is 100% appropriate to be a picky eater. The kiddos that I'm more focused on are those kiddos that have that atypical picky eating. Um, I, I recently saw a statistic that said 80% of children with developmental delays have a feeding disorder. So that's well over half of the children that would fall into that camp that I see. But I also do work with kids who, um, are parents of children whose child maybe doesn't have a neurodevelopmental disorder or a special need but is still only eating four foods right or is still only eating a handful of foods and they're an extreme picky eater those are also kids that i will work with because what i find is that sometimes oftentimes there are those underlying almost like a food addiction where some of these foods that these children are eating are creating an opiate response within their body and brain and so if you were eating foods that cause an opiate like response you're going to see that addictive type of drive or even behaviors that um, look atypical right um, mm. so, so most of my focus is on kids with neurodevelopmental disorders and special needs. But I also do see those kiddos who are um, the more extreme picky eaters. And uh, I know we talked a little bit about this in the last episode I was on, but my background is in speech-language pathology. And um, as a speech-language pathologist, most people don't know that the professionals who are trained feeding specialists – like for children with feeding disorders beyond picky eating, those are generally speech-language pathologists or occupational therapists. Sometimes you might see a PT or a psychologist or a social worker or another professional, but oftentimes it's either going to be an SLP or an OT, and they're going to have extra training as a feeding specialist. So my role before before solely doing my own private therapy in uh, my private practice, speaking of health and wellness, I was a speech language pathologist, but also a feeding specialist. And so that's my background is I come at, I come at it from a background of being a, a developmental professional with a background in feeding therapy. But now I also have this extra layer of how Bio individual nutrition also plays a role, and so I feel like I have a one up on most nutritionists working with these kids because I've got this background in development and feeding special uh, as a feeding specialist. But then I also have a leg up a little bit on my colleagues that are SLPs and feeding specialists because I'm also an NTP and I have this bioindividual nutrition knowledge. And so with the combination of them both, I feel like I'm able to really look at the whole child, the whole family unit, meet them where they are and, and um, help families decide what and how to feed their children. Because you can tell a family what to feed their children, but if the child's not eating it that's going to be increasingly difficult for that family right
0: definitely definitely yeah i've seen that and uh, you know and sometimes the child has such challenging behaviors that the family is uh it's, it's very taxing on the family and they they don't even want to address the eating issues because it's like they, they just think I don't want to have to battle with them on totally. every front, yep. but if they understood how the food is interacting with the whole biochemistry and kind of, uh, you know, f- feeding the disorder,
1: absolutely
0: right, um, yeah, you know, through dysbiosis and through you know other th- other uh, issues that NTPs are trained to to look for, um, and and to Address, I think they would um, be able to muster, you know, the wherewithal to sort of work on those issues more. It's just deciding where to put your focus, right? It's it's overwhelming parenting a child with special needs.
1: Absolutely, there you know, a lot of these families, you have to, especially in my families who have Down syndrome, or I'm sorry, whose children have Down syndrome, or um, whose children have autism and or both, you can imagine that the therapies for that child, it's like a full-time job between OT, PT, speech, behavioral therapies, and then if they need feeding therapies as well, that is a, almost a full-time job, sometimes is a full-time job for parents and caregivers. And so I have a lot of respect for those families that do address nutrition because it. it it is It is a process. It is a process, and it's not always easy. But I've seen it be so impactful time and time again. I cannot even begin to describe to you the difference in the children who I've seen use nutrition and lifestyle versus those that don't. I mean, the, the progress and the generalization of therapy um, and the skills that they're learning is complete night and day. You know, I might make progress six months faster with a child with nutrition than I did, you know, working with a kid for months and months and months, um, without nutrition.
0: And we've, we've known some of this, um, with the, um, some of the work around the specific carbohydrate diet, right? I mean, there, there is some information I think that's been going around the, um, autism community about, um, a very controlled diet in terms of carbohydrate intake and so forth. How, how do you incorporate that into your practice or, or, you know, do you?
1: So I look at every kid bio-individually and where I always start is food quality. So if they're not already eating a, an organic diet, then that's where we start looking at organic produce, um, removing those dyes, Uh, artificial flavors, any sort of artificial ingredients, right? How do we get this kid organic? We go from pizza to pizza to chicken nuggets to chicken nuggets, but it's all going to better quality, right? From there, I pretty much leave it in the parents' hands of, okay, we're looking at removing gluten and or dairy. Which one do you want to start with? If I have my way, I prefer parents to start with gluten. The reason why is because... The antibody for gluten to leave the system can take up to six months. The uh, casein antibody, the protein found in dairy, can take approximately three weeks to leave the body, right? So if you're going to get started on one sooner than later, let it be gluten is what I say. Um, Now, when I say that the antibody doesn't leave for up to six months, what that means is that you can't really, truly judge the effectiveness of that diet as a whole until you have reached that point where they've been gluten-free for four to six months without any um, whoops moments. I mean, and and Madeline, I even know kids that are so sensitive to gluten that they cannot play with Play-Doh because it absorbs into their bloodstream through their hands, And so, so that's, I mean, I mean, totally gluten-free in their diet and lifestyle. And then we move towards dairy. And then once they are organic, gluten-free, dairy-free, from there, I'm able to start bio-individualizing their nutrition. If the state allows for that because we have very varying nutrition laws. But if they're in a state that allows for bioindividualized individualized nutrition, I'm then able to bioindividualize even further. So looking at things like FODMAPs, looking at things like oxalates, looking at salicylates, looking at um, phenols, amines, histamines, you know, all these things that could be healthy for you and I or or someone but maybe for a child with a neurodevelopmental disorder or special need who is more sensitive, those foods are going to be maybe more problematic. And so we're able to do that either through um, functional, functional lab testing with a functional medicine doctor who uh, we partner with to get those labs and have that analysis. And or we can also use a... Um, a food and mood journal that also looks at bowel movements and how regulated they are, as well as a uh, a symptom uh, symptom analysis kind of ranking. It's it's very similar to what the NTA uses for um, NAC. Only at, I've kind of made it a little bit more tailored towards kids in a, a more simplified version. But that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, I think you've talked a little bit about, you know, what the typical symptoms are that you see in, in your clinic, in your practice. How does, how does medicine approach these issues? When these people come to you, I mean, what have they been through in terms of um, a treatment method prior?
1: So traditional conventional medicine, the allopathic world may medicate these kids at times. Um, But often the first go-to are specialized therapies for whatever the child and family needs most and can make happen. So that would be like speech-language therapy, feeding therapy, social skills groups, occupational therapy, behavioral therapy, physical therapies. Those are the most common. But if a kid is aggressive or um, has self-injurious behaviors or has constipation or, you know, they're we could go on and on about symptoms that sometimes these kids are medicated for um that nutrition could most certainly help like for example i've known kids who were on Miralax for months as toddlers and again this is no judgment towards those parents because they're only taking the advice of their doctor but Miralax was never studied or approved for children We have evidence that it causes some neuropsychiatric symptoms in children. And even for adults, it shouldn't be taken for extended periods of time. And so just things like that, where I think it's very similar to, um, how medicine treats all of us, right? It's, it's more looking at the symptoms and let's address the symptoms, but it's not addressing the root cause or the why. They look right. at these these conditions more as psychological versus neurological. And when I say neurological, what I mean is that the body impacts the brain, right? What we see is a direct influence of the body and the brain talking to each other and working together.
0: Right. So, yeah, so correct. I mean, we we know that so many of these kids have um digestive issues right they have um you know sort of not so normal um uh, bowel um can, you know issues and um and it's not a coincidence and uh, you know the, the whole the whole idea of a microbiome and and sort of the um, the ecology of your gut and dysbiosis you know these are these are not topics that most practicing physicians are fluent in but they they need to be taken into consideration when you have a child when you have a person presenting to you that has some impact from that because as you said it's a neurological, um, uh, illness. And so many of our, you know, half our neurotransmitters are made in the gut. So got to think about the gut. Now that may seem weird to people who are thinking, well, you've got the brain up here. What does it have to do with the gut? I don't get it. You know, it's your
1: second brain. Yeah.
0: It's a bigger brain than the brain in your
1: head. Yeah, Yeah. It really is. It really is. And so, yeah, I, those, that's generally how medicine would approach those
0: and so, and so, is your approach? Since you have a background as a, um, a speech therapist, are you working on both fronts at the same time right away, or how do you how do you structure that in your practice?
1: Mm, great question. So this depends on the setting. So I really don't do a lot of traditional uh, speech language therapy anymore. It's not I, I I like it. Don't get me wrong, but it's not where my passion lies anymore. And I think that by Focusing on where my passion does lie, I allow the speech language therapists that are working with our with my clients uh, to be more effective. I think, you know, if I'm if I'm helping this child to be in a better space for learning and therapy, then I'm helping this speech language therapist be a more um, effective speech language therapist. And so I've really kind of backed away from that role. Um but I do see children locally here in Denver. I go to their homes um, so that families don't have to go elsewhere. And then I'm in their natural environment. And with those children, I am doing a combination of, um, I, I might do some speech therapy, but it's not really traditional speech therapy. It's more of like developmental coaching mixed with feeding therapy and nutritional coaching, right? But most of my work um, is primarily done online. That's really where I'm heading. And so in the online space, it's all educationally based information, right? It's all for educational purposes only. It's only uh, nutrition and mealtime coaching. And so I can't specifically act as that child's feeding therapist. So if I'm with a family online and we've been working together for a month or so and all of the nutritional aspects that I would assume would would be working and should be, you know, maybe the kids' food repertoire is not opening up like I think it should be or the picky eating isn't getting any better after a certain amount of time, I might then say, you know what? I think that we should find a feeding therapist in your area for an assessment. Let's see if your child maybe has um, a tongue tie. Let's see if they have a swallowing difficulty. Let's see how, you know, X, Y, Z, because I don't ever want to discount how important a feeding therapist is, right? I am a feeding specialist, and so I understand the importance of that, and I understand that if a child needs a feeding specialist, that, I mean, that's that. There's no um,
0: no substitute. If, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: like if, if it's an oral motor or a function issue in the mouth, I cannot do that online, right? I cannot do that. And so um, I help them find someone in their area that can. So most of my work right now is nutrition and mealtime coaching with some developmental coaching, some behavioral coaching on strategies of what and how to feed your children and oftentimes a lot of the kiddos i see are deficient in various nutrients at the same time they're also getting those opiate-like responses from other foods that create those food addictions and so what i look at are those biochemical underliers of what are you deficient in and what is the offending food and how can we how can we create the most nutrient dense and least restrictive nutrition protocol or diet for this child, right? Cause it's not about restriction. It's about increasing their repertoire. But sometimes in order to do that, you have to remove those offending foods, primarily gluten, casein, soy.
0: Right. So, can you tell us uh, about maybe a a case, an example client, or like a case study when how um, you know how they presented and how what kind of progress they were able to make on on your protocol?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, let me think of a little guy. So i just I just finished up a package recently with this little guy. And he made incredible progress, and I'm so proud of his mom and dad for the changes that they made because ultimately I'm giving the strategies, but it's the families that are putting in the work, right? And mm-hmm. so um, this little guy, he's preschool age. He has a diagnosis of autism, and he he is verbal. He is able to talk, and um, but he still... When we started working together, he was pretty spacey, uh, struggled with inattention, hyperactivities. He had very significant texture issues um, with his food. So if foods uh, didn't appear just right or didn't feel just right to him, he it was like an all or nothing type of thing for him, specifically um he had to have his shredded chicken like just the right amount of dryness for whatever reason um and so and and also he had to have certain brands of food that's also a a hallmark sign that i see is like they only will accept these certain brands of food um And so anyways, some of of the things that I was seeing on his food journal kind of looked like those food addictions, those opiate-like responses that we talked about, and sure enough, um, his, his mom, oh my gosh, she amazed me. She moved so quickly through our program. She, she cut dairy, and they saw incredible improvements. The first improvements that they saw were in his bowel movements. He became more regular. Um, they were less hard. And so as they removed casein from his system, they started to realize, wow, we're seeing all these improvements. Well, at the molecular level, casein and gluten are very very similar looking um, and so oftentimes what I'll say is well you know if they're responding to one they're probably responding to the other so sure enough she as planned removed gluten soon after that and she they were gluten and dairy free and organic very quickly and we were able to then look at the um, okay, are there any other foods that he's driving towards? And sure enough, uh, one of them was blueberries. And there was a, a compound in blueberries where he was like borderline addicted to them. And so anyways, after we expanded his diet in a way where he was getting more variety of foods that were presented to him in a way that were not overwhelming and presented in a way where there was no pressure to eat the food, slowly but surely, over time, he started to increase his willingness to try these other new foods. And then she was able to, you know, say she prepared this food one way, then she would be able to prepare it a different way. As he expanded his palate and as he as those antibodies left his system, we saw an increase in attention, we saw those changes in bowel movements, and actually, in a review that she left me, these are her words, we actually saw um, his autism symptoms lessened is what she told me, and we use a, a, so for kids with autism specifically, in my practice I will have them fill out a common autism checklist it's called the ATEC autism treatment evaluation checklist and we do it as a baseline measure and then at the end and this kiddo had actually improved several points on that autism checklist within a matter of three months I was amazed I was absolutely amazed um, his picky eating improved digestion improved just overall was a more connected kiddo and um, Yeah, I was, I, they were the first to come to mind because that mom was such a go-getter and she really, uh, wasted no time on the strategies that I gave her. And she was, she's like the ideal client, right? That, that go-getter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it, probably it, it occurs to me that sometimes parents and other siblings might experience some improvements in health through these very same measures, right? So putting everyone in the house on the diet <laughs> might not be a bad thing and it'll be easier on mom too.
1: Absolutely. And one thing that's really important to note too is like in terms of the whole family doing it and, and not to say that like, you know, if, if your, ch- if your kid is gluten and dairy free, that you have to be gluten and dairy free all the time. But like you said, there are so many improvements that I have heard that come just secondary to to working in a package with me for their child where they'll, where they'll say, yeah, I've lost weight or yeah, my husband's headaches have gotten better or the brother's asthma has gotten better or sister's eczema has gone away or whatever. But But, but one thing that's important to note too is like you uh you and i have talked a lot about is that microbiome right we we talk about the microbiome of the gut but your mouth also has a microbiome and so if you're not eating aligned with how your child is and you're trying to um start this special healing lifestyle for lack of better words but like one kiss to your child can transmit Millions of bacteria. And mm-hmm. so it's almost like you're um, you're not you're not letting them fully like rebalance that microbiome if you're still eating all the things that they used to eat too. If that makes sense. I feel like I didn't explain that very well, but um, but really fascinating to think about it from that perspective, too. And I know that sometimes that's too much for families, but i do I do think uh, the benefits of the whole family eating this way are, huge. And I, when I see families do it together, I see faster progress and I see less, um, less whoops moments. You know what I mean? Because yeah. then everyone's mindful of it. It's not, Oh, whoops. I, I'm a seven-year-old brother and I didn't know that my four-year-old sister wasn't supposed to have that. You know, it's, it's just less opportunity for, uh, infractions.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. So do you have a quick tip for parents with kids that may have similar issues?
1: I'd say the quick tip is just not to discount the power of diet and nutrition. It's seriously so powerful. And I've talked to parents who have said, oh, yeah, we tried the diet. It didn't work for us. But then upon further uh, exploring with them, uh, come to find out, they didn't do it to the entirety, right? Maybe they cut cheese and milk, but they didn't cut dairy from the additives. So really, in in the body, in terms of how the body's seeing it, you weren't gluten, or I'm sorry, you weren't dairy free, you still were having dairy. And so you're not really allowing it the full uh, perspective, or the full opportunity to work. And so I think I think that's what the quick tip would be is that so many, so many professionals try to discount special diets, specifically gluten and casein free, because they believe that if a child's only eating a few foods and, and literally I've worked with children who have like two foods. um, So I know that that is serious. And they think that if you eliminate those foods, then that's going to cause more stress to the situation because then what will they eat? Um, which I know that that, that sounds so daunting for those families, but the truth is, is that they will not expand their food repertoire if they are addicted to those foods. So if you've ruled out any functional mouth challenges with chewing or swallowing, then after that, you have to start wondering more about nutritional deficiencies and food addictions. Um, and like I've said throughout this whole episode, gluten and dairy are the top offenders. It would be very, um, I know this is dogmatic to say, but it would be really surprising to me to meet a child with a neurodevelopmental disorder who didn't have a sensitivity to these, proteins that I'm talking about and I will also say some families go into their doctor and have their have an IgG panel or an IgE panel ran and it comes back negative. Oh my kids fine, he can eat gluten, he can eat dairy, he can have casein. It didn't come back on the test. It isn't always going to show up on the test and the best way to see that is to do an elimination diet. But before you do an elimination diet, the quality of food matters first. So I guess, okay, that wasn't as quick as I wanted it to be. But, but basically, the quickest summary of it is that diet, diet matters, nutrition matters, quality matters. And then beyond that, once you get that quality in line, then you can start to bio-individualize.
0: Yeah, I Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense to me, and I, I, Sandy, I've had that same experience with, um, with, with my clients who say, "Oh, yeah, I tried the gluten-free thing. I tried the casein-free thing." But as you say, uh, there are many sources of gluten in the diet, and there are many sources of casein in the diet, and you have to be really well educated to know exactly where, you know, where the, um, the oops moments can happen, because there is a huge difference between zero gluten, and a tiny bit, even once a week, mm-hmm. you know, even once, knows. yeah, every few weeks will just reinforce those antibodies. I mean, we're talking about the immune system. The immune system is designed to um, to to recognize and to attack based on microscopic amounts of things. So yeah, it's really uh, you have to be extremely strict. There are no halfway measures. There are no 98% measures. There, you, know, you have to be 100% in.
1: Absolutely. And especially when you're talking about an opiate response in the brain, right? With a child, that is a, I mean, to me, that's very serious. If we have a drug-like response going on in the brain and body of a child, how can we expect them to be in the best space for learning? How can we expect them to be Perform at their optimal self if they have a drug-like response occurring in their body. We can't so so again I I think that nutrition is the absolute foundation I'm not discounting traditional therapies. I'm a speech-language pathologist. I think it's so important, but I think that nutrition is the underlying foundational Starting point and the beautiful thing about nutrition is that even if it wasn't your starting point It's never too late to start. So while I love to work with kids who are toddlers and preschoolers and children who are very recently diagnosed I Also, you know if a parent said hey my child is 18 years old. I'd say do it (laughs) Still do it, you know
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah if you can um, so, remind us again how people can find you if they would like to work with you.
1: Thank you so much for asking me that. So, I offer uh, complimentary discovery calls for families to see if we would be the best fit. Um, you can self-schedule uh, through my self-scheduling link at speakingofhealthandwellness.com. dot com. So that's a play on words with my speech language pathology background. Speaking of health and wellness, all one word dot com.
0: Okay, perfect. Sandy, it's been great having you on the show. So educational. I've learned a lot.
1: Thank you so much, Madeline. It's been a pleasure to be here. And I'm so grateful that we could connect. And it was it was just lovely to chat with you. Thank you for having me on.
0: Thanks for joining us for the Flourish with Functional Nutrition podcast. Please listen again and remember to follow us and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. To learn more about Twin Cities Nutritional Therapy or check out our podcast page, visit tcnutritionaltherapy.com. To find a nutritional therapy practitioner in your area, use the provider search at nutritionaltherapy.com. Until the next time, be well and flourish. Content of this podcast copyright 2019 by Twin Cities Nutritional Therapy. Music by Barbara Ben.